Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to Stupidity, home of the greatest media mind ever to walk the planet. I tell you what, man, he's a literal titan across the entire media landscape. Okay, so here's the deal. He's a true icon in every sense of the word. He's loved and feared more than any being to grace this planet. Hey, Stugas, a man with a voice that sounds like Barry White and Beyonce had a Jewish baby. God himself would pay $39.99 for a cameo. Fact of the matter is, you are about to embark on a transcendent experience that can only be described as psychological nudity. This is Stu Goss, and this is Stupidity. Here we go, Jim. Tony! podcast in the world. We are presented by DraftKings. We have a very special episode today. We have Christopher Clary. Now, we're in the midst of the U.S. Open right now, and Novak Djokovic is going for a Grand Slam. Now, he's likely going to get it and achieve the Grand Slam, something we haven't seen in our lifetime, a calendar Grand Slam by a men's tennis player. But he is doing so in large part because there is no Nadal and there is no Roger Federer. Those guys are not there to challenge Novak Djokovic in the U.S. Open. And I'm not saying Novak wouldn't get it done anyway. He probably would have. He's playing at a different level even than those guys right now. But I am not certain we've ever seen a guy play at the level of Roger uh, Federer and be able to do it with the style and grace that Federer has been able to do it with. So Christopher Clary wrote a book called The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. And uh, he's going to join us in just a second. But, Mikey A., you, of course, know what that means. I mean, I buried the lead there because, yes, Clary is joining us, and he is a great writer and author, and this book's going to be a big hit because people are intrigued by Roger Federer, and he got inside of Roger Federer's life, inside of his inner circle, and uh, has some great stories for us. But when I say we're burying the lead, I had to recruit Adnan Verk, hashtag Team Federer, along with Andrew Brandt. What? 
Uh, I had to recruit uh, Adnan for this uh, for this interview because Adnan, no one knows more about Federer. No one loves Federer more. And in fact, I'm surprised Adnan didn't write this fucking book, and Clary did. How about that? I mean, seriously. <laughs> Do you think Adnan knows what like Federer's garbage tastes like? Do you think he like yes. drives by and just like he's like, ooh, he used the the hefty two ply today. Yeah, I think he knows what he smells like. I think he knows what cologne he uses. I, I, I do. Adnan wears Federer clothes while he's watching Federer matches inside of his ass. I mean, listen, and I know what you're afraid of. I'm afraid of the same thing. We're going to talk to Clary, and he's going to have glowing things to say about Federer, and Adnan's going to be there rubbing his nipples. I mean, I mean. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> he is part of the lamest... <laughs> social media feed going right now. Hashtag Team Federer. I believe it's just him, Brandt, a friend of his, Jim Kleinfeld or something like that, and uh, Leslie Visser. (laughs) (laughs) Who's the president of Hashtag Team Fed? Oh, it's Adnan. You you don't think Brandt, like, probably tries to, like, use all his connections to, to climb that corporate ladder of Hashtag Team Fed? I would say in terms of who looks most presidential amongst Hashtag Team Fed, it would be Brandt, okay? I think Adnan would probably... Leslie Visser would be a close second. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. Leslie Visser is a badass. I've yes. gotten to know her. She's awesome. In fact, we should get her on this podcast only to make fun of her <laughs> because she's part of hashtag team <laughs> fed. <laughs> but I mean, I think Adnan... Listen, I think if we had Adnan on and you ask him that question, he'd tell you he's the president. If we had Brandt on, he'd tell you he's the president. If we had Visser on, we'd tell you he's the president. The only guy that wouldn't is a Kleinfeld character. <laughs> I don't even know who he is. I mean, right. dude that Adnan plays tennis with. I mean. All right, let me ask you this. Your family aside, is there anything in this world that you love as much as Adnan and Andrew Brandt and Leslie Visser and Kleinfeld love Federer? Oh, wow. Oh, by the way, it's Kleinberg. Him too. <laughs> uh, is there anything that I love more in my life than Adnan and those people love Roger Federer? You're saying outside of family, like the important stuff? Yeah, outside of family. Uh, hmm. Is it the dead? It's, it's either the dead or, or weed. <laughs> Those go hand in hand. Dead weed. Same <laughs> let's get to uh let's get to Christopher Clary, who wrote the book about Roger Federer and Adnan Burke. If you don't hear listen, whenever Adnan's not talking, he's touching himself. <laughs> let's get to Christopher. <laughs> Gonna hear Adnan breathing heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Stu Gouts here for my friends over at Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years. One thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So, what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Listen, for me, it's simple. When I'm sitting around with friends, with family, we're at concerts, we're watching the Knicks finally win for the first time in 30 years, we're laughing, we're having a great time, we do it with ice cold. 
Miller Lite. So always have, always will. Miller Lite keeps it simple, undebatable quality, great taste, only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com stew, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Oh my gosh, folks, gather around. Everyone gather around, listen to these words. The NBA playoffs are heating up and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And if you're new to DraftKings, you gotta check this out. New customers, listen to me, you bet just five bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use code DAN. That's code DAN for new customers. And you get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. That's insane. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. The book is The Master, The Brilliant Career of Roger Federer. And now, Christopher, I brought Adnan on because he is part of... uh, Well, Adnan, go ahead and explain what it is you do on social media because I want to see if Christopher finds this to be a little bit strange. (laughs) So normally, Chris, when Stu asks me to come on Stupidity, I I consider it an imposition. We were friends and I'm happy to help, but I'm like, okay, there's a little bit of dilly-dallying scheduling. This time he said, hey, I've got Christopher Clary coming on. He's going to book about Federer. I said, I'll stop everything to come on and talk about Roger. (laughs) I I live and die with him. I'm tweeting massively. I'm in pain when he loses and I've started the book. It's fabulous. I encourage everyone to read it. I actually listen to Chris with my buddy Richard Deitch as well. So Chris is everywhere. Federer, to me, as you know, Chris, you wrote this in the book. Uh, David Foster Wallace wrote this years ago. Federer as religious experience. The, the devotee of Federer, wherever he goes, he's the favorite. It doesn't matter in the world. His universal appeal and popularity transcends all. And that's why guys like me are so excited to talk to you. So I'm thrilled you wrote this book. Let's start there. The Every Man Appeal of Federer, which you, I, I've read the book. I love the fact you pointed out, and I think this is a really big part of it. He's got 20 Grand Slam wins. He's the greatest, okay? Fine. Maybe Djokovic will be with the US Open. We'll see. But he's had some big losses. The mm. loss to Nadal at 08, the loss to Djokovic in 2019 still pains me because I said to myself, this is his last great chance. It's Wimbledon, and then he loses. Let's start there. Federer, for all his greatness, has had some losses, which make him very relatable. Yeah, that's and one of the things about this book I wanted to do. I've been covering him you know, incrementally in, in thousand-word chunks for 20-plus years for the papers that I work for, the New York Times and the International Herald Tribune. And I really wanted to kind of dig into it and try to understand things I might have taken for granted or not had that big-picture view on. And that was one of them, the sort of how can this guy have had this such clean run, you know, in terms of his popularity. And I travel around the world following him. I speak a couple of different languages. He does, too. And he's in all these different cultures. And it really is the same all over the world. It isn't just the U.S. or Wimbledon. I mean, we're talking about everywhere he goes. It's this kind of vibe. And I think it's because of the way he plays. It's the elegance of his game. That's for sure a part of it. And it's just anybody who likes sport or, or human movement, if you will, can look at him and say, hey, this is cool to watch. The guy's just so fluid. It's like liquid. Adnan, I want to see both your hands. 
to this whole interview, please. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see both your hands. While That's a great call, Mikey. Hey, listen, he wear, listen, Christopher, so you know, this man wears Federer gear while he's playing matches, and he wears it in his house. It's weird. That's <laughs> <laughs> to keep some journalistic dignity and remove here, so I don't do that. <laughs> I have written a lot of words about the guy. And so the other thing, though, is that it's, as you said, it's the human aspect of it. And why has he been humanized? It's because, yeah, he shows his emotions. And because, you know what, he has been absolutely through the ringer in the public eye and these brutal defeats. He's had the close losses, as you mentioned, two match points down or two match points against Novak to win the match twice at the U.S. Open in back-to-back years and lost both times in the semis. Crazy situation. He also was destroyed by Nadal in the 2008 French Open final. So, you know, it's just all those things have been part of it. I think people have seen him vulnerable. They've seen him triumphant. They can relate to both. And that's that's been pretty cool. Christopher, he does make everything look so easy. He's one of the greatest athletes I've ever seen, obviously. But the path is never that easy. And so I'm wondering, was his path, how hard, how difficult was Roger Federer's path to making it to the greatest tennis player of all time? Was it as hard as Novak Djokovic? No. I mean, Novak Djokovic came out of a you know, war-torn situation. with His dad had like 10 Deutschmarks on the table, slammed it on the ground. And uh, so this is all we've got. No, Roger never had to experience that kind of hardship, that kind of tough road. So that's different. But in terms of his own path and what he was confronted with, yeah, it was not at all predestined that he would be you know, one of the one of the greatest players of all time. And uh, I think he had to overcome obstacles in his own temperament. The guy had real issues with his uh, emotions, managing them and handling defeats, handling just the pressure of competition. He had to deal with his own technical difficulties in terms of his backhand, which was a real liability for a long time. He had to deal with his own business problems. The guy's a billionaire now or he's earned a billion dollars big piece in the New York Times Magazine today. It's an excerpt from the book about that. But he was also, in a way, he's from a small country in Europe without a whole lot of tradition of men's tennis players. So he had to overcome a lot of commercial obstacles, too. He did it very systematically. He did it with a lot of good choices. And let's face it, a bit of luck, too, right? And I think he had that empathy and that human side to him that allowed him to relate to people. And he's curious. He wants to learn about situations as he goes through them. He's not just one-way traffic. It's two-way traffic. So I think all those things are are important. And I think there's some things there we can actually learn from. You can't learn how to play like Roger Federer, but you can learn how he did things so well for so long and apply them to your own life. Doc, we're Christopher Clara right now, the master, his fabulous new book about Roger Federer. I want to go back and further to your point you just made, Chris. I've heard many journalists say, you know, what's unique about Federer? He's the only guy who's ever asked me about me. Athletes are the height of self-absorption. All they care about is themselves. It doesn't mean that they're not polite. It does not mean that they're not respectful. But you ask them a question, they answer the question, they move on. Federer is the rare guy who actually asks you, how are you doing? He remembers your kids' names. He remembers your interests. That is extraordinary. And as you point out in the book, there's nothing false about that. That's who Roger is. He's actually off camera, a gregarious guy. He's a little goofy. We've seen the videos of him and Rafa together. They start laughing, having laughing fits together. Bit of a prankster. I love that you illuminated that aspect of Roger that he's genuinely cares about people. Yeah, I'm not sure about the kids' names part. That might be taking a little bit too far, but I mean, just the general themes. Yeah, he remembers that time to time. And it isn't just, you know, PR, because I've asked people that, you know, know him privately, like Paul Anacone, his former coach. He had a buddy who was in the construction business, and Paul was with Roger for three years or so, four years traveling around the world. And he introduced his buddy to Roger. Roger didn't know who he was, middle of a Grand Slam tournament. And Roger starts quizzing the guy about the construction business. It's like, how do you do that? You know, what, how's it work for you? You know, how are you building all this different stuff? So, I mean, that's, to me, that's really interesting. And I think it's also, it's endearing, but it's also part of his longevity. It's that curiosity, that energy he gets from other people 
he wants to know what's really going on around him. He kind of gets in there and he absorbs the energy in the room and he wants to know more about it. And I can't tell you that a lot of superstar athletes are like that. A lot of times it really is put up a wall, protect myself or else, you know, really I need to succeed and selfishly be there for myself, most importantly. And Roger has a bit more dimension to him, no doubt. Give us something about Roger Federer that most people would not know. Well, if you follow tennis, one thing I learned in the book, I mean, I've been covering him for a long time, and I learned a lot of things. One thing I learned for sure is that, you know how when he plays, I'll use my hand again here, when he plays and he keeps his eyes on the ball after he finishes the shot, all the photos of him or you watch slow-mo, he's like the only guy who does that on the tour. I've always wondered, you know, why? I was talking to uh, Paul McPherson, great Australian coach of uh, the Bryan brothers and John Isner over the years. And Paul said, well, you know what? His childhood coach, Peter Carter, who died in an accident in 2002 in a car accident in uh, South Africa, so sadly, Peter Carter did the same thing. So that's pretty cool that that passes on as much as Peter Carter meant to Roger. And that little detail for me was something I thought was super cool to learn. I didn't know that. The stuff about Peter Carter is fascinating. And you're right. Tragically died at 37. Uh, Jeep accident. Federer had told him where to go. Some honeymoon, I think it was. And tragically died on his honeymoon. But to go back to his upbringing, Peter Carter was critical. And you mentioned the temperament. That's one of the biggest shocks to me, Chris, is that Roger Federer, the first words that come to mind to me are calm, effortless, phlegmatic, graceful, elegant. And as you said, he was a hothead. He said, I was a sore loser. Tell the story his dad told about the time that they were hitting together. And he goes, that's it. You go home by yourself today. Yeah, I mean, I think the Federer parents, like a lot of tennis parents, you know, they had to deal with uh, their, their child's emotions and expectations. Roger was always considered super talented, but people really felt like his, you know, emotional makeup and his problems uh, controlling it were going to be big obstacles for him and might hold him back from being a great player or even a really a good player. So his dad and, and his mom, I'm sure, but his dad was fighting this. There's a story when they were driving back from a junior tournament where he just got so tired of Roger complaining and ranting in the car that he stops the car and goes and buries his head in the snowdrift to cool him off which isn't too PT these days, but that was, I guess, the way it was done in Switzerland at the time. Yeah. And the story you mentioned is in the book, and that's about, you know, he and Roger, I think, at Old Boys Club, which is Roger's childhood club in Basel, pretty modest place you can just rock up to. But he was out there playing with him, and Roger was just complaining and fooling around or not behaving properly, and his dad just got up, left money on the bench, and took off and said, get yourself home. I'm Five Swiss francs. Good luck to you. Whatever it was, exactly. Your memory's yeah. better than mine. You know? So there you and, go. And the other thing with Basel, Stu will love this as well, Mike. Our friend Ryan Rosillo is currently there. He just texted me. Hey, I'm in Basel. I'm like, oh, my God. There's not much there signifying Federer. I would expect there's statues erected to his greatness. And as you point out, there's like one court that has his name on it. This is a very Swiss phenomenon that they do not lionize the fact they've got the great Roger Federer in their town. The best thing about that is I was at that club a couple of years ago for the for the book and for New York Times reporting. And um, there's the Roger Federer court. There's also the Marco Cudinelli court right next. To and Marco was, this, you know, Roger's best friend as a kid who became, you know, I, I have to say it nicely, a journeyman pro really on, on tour and has had some success Was part of the Davis Cup team, didn't even play in the final. And, you know, he's got his own court, too. So that's very Swiss. It's just, you know, pretty egalitarian. We're not going to make too big a deal out of it. And I think, honestly, Roger likes that. He gets that vibe at home and it relaxes him. And one other thought there on his upbringing, the fact that he's five kilometers away from Germany and France. And one of the great quotes in the book was, he, imagine if he was French, like how unbearable would that be? Roger Federer? <laughs> <laughs> if, if France had the greatest tennis player ever, no. Roger Federer. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. That was from Marc Rosset, who was the great Swiss player before Roger yes. arrived, the Olympic champion. And he was, and Mark is a funny guy, actually, very funny. 
And he was, you know, he speaks French. He's a French, French speaking Swiss guy, but he loves to rattle the French. So that quote was right, right out of the heart from Marc Rosset. Absolutely. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. We're talking with Christopher Clary, the master, the brilliant career of Roger Federer. His book is out right now. Uh, You spoke to a lot of people around Roger Federer. Did a single person have a single negative thing to say about Roger? You know, yeah, there's stuff that's out there about just in terms of maybe, I know Rafa talked about uh, when I did a news conference down in Australia a few years back, and he kind of burst out that Roger's always trying to look good wants to be the, the gentleman. People have to kind of be the bad guys. Uh, and Roger gets to be the guy out front who looks great. There's some of that feeling. There's feeling in the locker room sometimes that Roger gets breaks other people don't get in terms of scheduling, in terms of getting the prime court at the prime time. And sometimes, you know, even tournaments have kind of created surface speeds that suit his game to make it more attractive for him. So you hear those kinds of things. Those are out there. He's, he's not a saint and nor should we view him as one. But I think look at the overall run that he's had for this long in the public eye with the kind of jealousies that his success could generate and create. It is remarkable that there has been so little of that sort of stuff going on over the years. No doubt about it. He's not a saint, that, Daniel. Okay, I mean, <laughs> uh, I'm going I'm to dispute that. We're going to go ahead and edit that part of the saint. He is a saint, and I think Rafa can stick it because he doesn't know what the hell he's talking oh, about. I mean, they, 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 hey, listen, uh, listen, you take it all those French opens, Chris. Who cares about the clay, anyways? Okay, Rafa's not nearly as great as Roger. Uh, to get to the tennis aspect of it, this is what I find fascinating. I love the, the one-handed backhand, which Roger admired. My favorite guy growing up, Boris Becker. And, okay, Becker does the one-handed backhand. I'm going to do that too. And at times that has caused him problems. You as I know, there's been major moments in matches like, oh man, that backhand, once it starts spraying. But what's his actually his greatest skill? Is it his serve? Is it his forehand? Is it that movement? I mean, hashtag Team Fed. I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Uh, Andrew Brandt, I'm sure you know, is a huge tennis aficionado. What do you think is his greatest weapon? Look, I think if I had, before I started working on the book, I would have said the forehand inside out or the forehand because it's just his main shot. That's right. sort of great, precise serve, short ball, boom, point over. How many times does that happen? How many millions of times does that happen in his career? It's, it's the shot that has won in most of his titles. But I would say after researching the book, the thing that really in, I found very interesting, and you guys as, as general sports mavens would know uh, what I'm talking about here, is that it seems when you watch him, it's a bit about that thing I mentioned before with the eyes, you know, mm-hmm. he seems like he has more time than other people. How can that be? And when you watch tennis live on the court, I, I urge you know, your listeners and people to not just watch on TV, get out and watch a tennis tournament in person because it just changes your whole perspective because then you see how fast they're moving, how fast the ball is going, how percussive the game is. It's a whole different, it's a revelation for a lot of people. And Roger, when you watch him play, he has more time, or at least until very recently, he seemed to have had more time than other guys. And I think talking to Rose, the guy you mentioned before, 
and some others, they feel like he has this different processing speed, this ability to see the whole court, like a Lionel Messi or a Jordan, people like that, that are able to kind of process the whole playing field at a pace that other people just cannot do it. And it can be a question of eyes, ears, overall perception, brain speed, processing speed, whatever it is, that has been a key for him. And it allows him to be both beautiful on the court and incredibly effective because he can have a chance to adapt and, and adjust as the game goes on. So I'm not quite sure how to define that, the biology of it, but there's clearly something going on there. And I think that maybe has separated him in a lot of ways. I think, and add in, I would guess it's anticipation. Like he just knows where the yes. ball is going and he gets to it quicker than anyone, which gives him more time. Uh, Christopher, I'm wondering, does he have a, is there a loss that keeps him up at night still until this day? Is there a loss that he's had? You know, Paul Anacone, his coach talked about his ability to kind of change the chip fast. He lost uh, Sanga. Joe Wilford Sanger, French player at Wimbledon. Um, and he was uh, up two sets and lost for the first time in his career. And their house in Wimbledon's right near the courts. And he basically got on the courtesy car and Anacone's going, how am I going to talk to this guy about this loss? This is so brutal. How am I going to help him? So he goes to the front door of the rented house and it's two twin daughters are there. And in about 30 seconds, he's on the ground wrestling with them and playing and laughing. So he has this ability, <laughs> I think, to compartmentalize and change the chip. And yet you cannot tell me that that loss to Djokovic in 2019 at Wimbledon did not keep him up or at least keep him a little troubled in his sleep, no matter how nice that camper van was at Mirka Arrangement. <laughs> but to your point, Murray Joe Francis is- That would have been the biggest victory of his career, no doubt, the biggest achievement of his career, which is something to say at that stage. And he was right there. That first serve hits the tape on match point. Novak was leaning the other way. It goes across and said it clips the tape. Done. We're going to have to go back to the positive, though. Again, those are that is crying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't leave my house for a week, Chris. I can't get into this again. I, I think of the great wins. We always talk about the greatest match ever played, the loss to Rafa. I thought 9 Wimbledon against Roddick was arguably just as good a match. It was incredible theater. And Andy is a guy who I, I've always felt likable. I and mean, listen, he's American. He's, he's a guy who's brash. I thought that was an incredible match. And Roger was able to outlast Andy after losing to Rafa the year before. But my favorite one, 2017 Aussie Open. When he beat Rafael Nadal, his biggest rival down under, I woke up that night, 3.38 a.m. without an alarm clock. My body was ready to go. I knew this was the match. And he played four and a half hours of incredible tennis late in his career. And he beat his biggest rival down under. I thought that was an incredible match, Chris. Yeah, and I think, as you said before, as we talked about, because of all the previous disappointments against Nadal, all those things that he went through, that match had such resonance. And also because, really, for him, it was a bit of gravy. He had had this uh, knee injury and first surgery, came back, didn't really work out well. So he took six more months off. And he came back, he made some adjustments in his game in terms of his tactics. I don't think he changed his grip on his backhand or anything, but he was just playing so freely. And you could sense, and he talked about this with me, you know, the pressure was off for the first time in ages. He didn't feel like he had to satisfy anybody. It was all kind of expectations were off. So he just played like that. And it was a great match. And he was down 3-1 in the fifth set against Nadal. Normally that would have been this death knell, but no, he came back and played some of the most outstanding tennis he's ever played in his career. And I would agree that's on the short list, but you know, that match in 08, even though he lost it against Nadal, I personally think the McEnroe Borg final at Wimbledon deserves for me, the greatest match I've ever seen of all time in terms of all that. But Rodgers and Rafa, that match in 08 was because of the style of play, the length of the rallies, the light, the moment, the buildup with their rivalry. I think that that had it all. The Connors. rain delays. I mean, it was yes. unbelievable. Yeah, it, was, it was just a crazy match. Yeah. It was free roof. So you'll never have that again. You won't have those flashing bulbs like that, you know, with yeah. the, and he was right. You could barely see in there when you're in the stadium, but it all had that very cinematic, dramatic feel to it. 
And I think it was uh, everything was just peaking at the right moment. And yeah, unfortunately for Roger, he lost. You got to throw Connor's Crick State into there, you know, into that conversation. Yes. Great. now it was one of the great matches of all time. We've all, yeah. seen them most, right? We've all seen that because of all those rain delays of the U.S. Open. That's <laughs> <laughs> Every Our, single time, 91 U.S. Open, there's yeah, 39-year-old Jimmy Connors. <laughs> it was amazing. Yes. Uh, Christopher, how important was the one French Open title to Roger? How important was that for him? Legacy-wise, that was huge. No, absolutely huge. Because, you know, the guys he modeled himself on, you guys were talking about it before, the Boris Beckers, Pete Sampras's, and Stefan Edberg's were his big idols as kids. None of them ever won the French. Roger was an attacking player, more so in his youth than he was in his middle age in tennis. He still could attack, but he was more of a baseline guy. And he was the second best clay court player for a very long time behind Nadal. And, um, but to have never have won that, yeah, you couldn't put him in the conversation as one of the greatest of all time if he Agreed. hadn't won that title. Yeah. I wish he had a chance to beat Rafa along the way as a tennis historian guy to kind of have that moment. Didn't get it because Nadal lost early to Soderling in a big surprise in the fourth round that year. But, you know, he, uh, he did it. So that matters. It's amazing in the book you point out how detailed he is, how prepared he is. He plans out his life nine months to a year and a half advance. Now, it's not to the level of, hey, 8 a.m., I'm doing this in Peru, but he literally knows his schedule well in advance. So with that being said, with this knee surgery, he said, I'm going to be out many, many months. Everybody's wondering, when will Roger come back? It would be obviously very difficult. You could imagine this life. Three knee surgeries at this point to win another major. But do you think he does return, Chris, knowing how detailed he is about his future, even with the uncertainty of this injury? The fact that he referred to glimmer of hope in his uh... – Instagram message the other day when he announces his fourth knee surgery and then he's out for the rest of the season. That was interesting because that's, that's almost like a, that's really negative from him to use that kind of terminology. So I think he knows it's not at all a done deal that he'll be able to come back. He wants to use it as motivation for himself in this rehab. Um, but he's a guy who is an optimist, amazing optimist. He's a guy who does not like to be told what he should do because he knows inside what his time is. And he's been telling, People, he's not going to retire. Or he's not close to it since 2009. Retirement question started after the French Open that he won. Because he had, he had them all. So, you know, late 20s at that time, Agassi and those guys are all, not Agassi, sorry, Pete and Boris and Stefan all were retiring in that, in that range. That's so why wouldn't Roger retire? So I think, you know, in the back of his mind, he's always felt like I'm going to follow my own timetable. It wouldn't surprise me if he does try to come back for, say, the grass court season next year after all his rehab and use it as a goal for himself. But I just cannot see him being you know, able at this stage at 40 years old with all these young guys improving and Novak still hungry and Rafa coming back in the mix on clay next year. I just do not see him being able to win another major title. Check out the book, the master, the brilliant career of Roger Federer. Christopher Clary is the author. He is with us. We'll let you go on this note. Does Roger Federer consider Roger Federer to be the greatest tennis player of all time? You know, I actually asked him that once and I think he, uh, he hedged his bets. Like I think all of us would at this point. But I think he could sort of feel in his mind that he was at one stage of his career, the greatest tennis player of all time. I think he felt that way when he was, uh, when he made that comeback, you guys talked about before in 2017 and he won those three grand slams in a row, got back to number one at age 36. I think he could make that argument in his mind. It's very hard in men's tennis. A lot of the greats of the past turned pro couldn't play in the slams for a long time. A lot of guys didn't get to play in the Australian open for a long time. Bjorn Borg played just one Australian open hard to compare those eras. I think he had that feeling, and I think that's what he's been searching more than the legacy. It's been that feeling in the moment, so that's what I would say. We'll close with this thought, because I've heard golf aficionados say this about Nicholas versus Palmer. They say, okay, Nicholas might have the most majors. He's the one they respect, but Arnold Palmer is the one that they love. Novak Djokovic, Chris, might end up with 24 majors, but Federer is the one that tennis fans will always love. The word greatest has room for analysis and, and uh, subjectivity, right? 
So what is the greatest? It's the greatest between the lines. I don't think you can say Rogers, the greatest between the lines of all time. I don't think that's possible at this point. Greatest overall, what he did for the game, impact on fans, impact on people just enjoying the sport as they watched it. I think he's got a strong argument. Christopher, good luck with the book. Uh, we appreciate your time, man. Fascinating stuff. And uh, I'm glad Adnan could be a part of it. So thank you for doing this. Thanks, Chris. Hey, hey. Real pleasure, you guys. Thanks so much. All right. Adnan, your hands were below the table the entire time. <laughs> I mean, Jesus. I want a sequel, Chris. Come on. You're going to write more than one. Let's get I'm tired. Adnan, you need I'm, a cigarette? I'm tired. I'm tired. That was a long book to write. 100 plus pages. Huh? <laughs> thank you, Chris. Uh, a great <laughs> read. Thanks, Chris. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. All right, that was a great look into the career and life of Roger Federer. Uh, Mike, how many times during that interview did you have to text Adnan to stop touching himself, like get his hands above the desk? How many times? You said it a couple of times during the interview, right. but how many times did you have to tell him privately? Go back to your text and look. I want to set the over-under. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set it. Hold up. Hold up. No, no, no. I'm going to set the over-under at five. And if I had to bet an amount of money that, you know, that mattered to me, I would take the over. So how many times? Forget about the two times you told him during the interview. I want to know how many times you texted okay. him like, Adnan, get your hands above the desk, okay? Okay, not including the time that I actually told him it's at seven. So ah! it, was, it was way over. Yes. We should have put that in the DraftKings Sportsbook. I mean, it was nice of him to text me back with one hand. <laughs> that wasn't his hand. It was his penis. It's too funny. Stu Gouts here for my friends over at Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years. One thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So, what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Listen, for me, it's simple. When I'm sitting around with friends, with family, we're at concerts, we're watching the Knicks finally win for the first time in 30 years, we're laughing, we're having a great time, we do it with ice cold. Miller Lite. Always have, always will. Miller Lite keeps it simple, undebatable quality, great taste, only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash stew, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.